I'm Michael McMullen. And I'm John Mark Yates. Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're going to be talking today uh, about events that happened March 1 through 7 uh, throughout the history of the church. We have two special things that we'd like to focus on today. Uh, one we'll get to a little bit later uh, in the podcast, which is the passion of Perpetua and Felicitas, uh, two women along with some of their male friends who were arrested uh, around the year 202 and then put to death for their faith in Christ in 203 on March 7. But before we get there, I thought we ought to talk about Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor is the founder of the China Inland Mission, and he set foot on the shore of China in Shanghai at the young age of 21 as a missionary on March the 1st in 1854. Now, in some respects, if we look at missions history, uh, Mike, I, there's hardly a name that rises to the level of Taylor. For me, Taylor is there at the center of what it meant to be a missionary, to establish a mission, to uh, support oneself on the mission field, and then to encourage an army of missionaries to follow. Uh, the great thing that sticks out for me about Taylor is the fact that um, I share a great affinity with him in the sense of we both come from the same county in England. That is important. Uh, and uh, <laughs> in fact, the uh, the city that I'm from, Hull, uh, when Taylor was preparing for the mission field and knew how um, or suspected how bad things would be on the mission field in China, he asked to be sent to um, the most difficult and hard place in England to prepare. And he was sent to Hull. <laughs> and uh, I, I can fully understand why he was sent there to prepare for going to China as a pioneer missionary. Yeah. And as he's doing this preparation, he's doing medical studies and uh, he's trying to figure out what is it going to take to make a difference for the gospel. Uh, and so for him, it logically meant uh, as a young man, let's do medical studies so that I can bring this into the country of China and help people. He had heard that there were issues going on there. And uh, so as as he does this, he actually gets far enough along in his his medical training that he uh, he, he drops out towards the conclusion of it because the, the need is great. He jumps on a ship uh, and sets sail. Um, but not everything was easy going when he got to uh, China. There was um, a civil war going mm -hmm. on when he arrives yeah. uh, in 1854. And it's it's probably a good space to even talk about and and just and to make sure that we understand. We think about like if you and I were to go to China today, it might take us a, a few hours by plane, uh, and it's something that that you know might be an inconvenience for Taylor to go. It, it was a five month journey. Yeah, and five months on a sailing ship, not. A luxury cruise. <laughs> well, what are you saying about sailing ships? Um, they're difficult. They're, they're seasickness. There are times when you're not going anywhere for days if there's no wind. Right. So five months, five months stuck. I'm sure he was excited to set foot on land, only discover that uh, this civil war was raging uh, while he was there uh, as he sets foot. So it, it pretty much kept him from doing a lot of work right away. He had to adapt very quickly to what was going on. So Taylor arrives and and he spends uh, a few years, basically about 11 years uh, in China. And it's 
it's a time where he be he he starts to go and and share the gospel uh, into the inland and trying to set up these uh, revival type uh, crusades, but he's running into uh, a major cultural problem, and uh, part of that is that everywhere he goes, people don't trust him, and part of that is uh, the way that he's dressing. He's he's called the black coat because mm. he's got on a a proper English gentleman's long coat. Yes, uh, especially as as a trained doctor, uh, he would have a certain fashion to fear, you know, feel that he had to uphold that kind of thing. One of my uh, favorite stories that I that I always remembered about Taylor that I read even as as a young man was how Taylor had uh, been going through a crowd and he had on his proper jacket and some person in the street stopped him and said, pray, sir, can you explain the meaning of the buttons in the middle of your back? Uh, his jacket had had uh, legacy bits. They didn't even use them necessarily for this as much, but it was uh, for bringing up your tails, your coattails, mm. and bunting it to the middle of your back. So when you rode on your horse, the tails weren't dragging uh, in the in the mud or yes. anything like that. So uh, it is at that moment Taylor realizes uh, I have an acculturation problem. Nobody's paying attention to what I'm saying, or they're distracted by these things. And Taylor does something rash. Uh, well, at least it seemed so uh, to the missionaries that he was serving with, where he went and got a proper Chinese haircut and he uh, abandoned all of his Western dress and uh, took on traditional Chinese dress. That led to disaster. He um, he meets uh, a missionary who's already been there for about 10 years, a, a Scottish missionary, William Chalmers Burns, yeah, and uh, persuades Burns that uh, to make real inroads into China, better not that you be the distraction, but the means for people to come to Christ. And uh, Burns, like Taylor, adopts the Chinese dress. They both travel together for uh, over a year. They both end up in prison for some time together, but uh, uh, Burns becomes uh, Taylor's spiritual mentor, really, uh, an incredible example to Taylor of, of uh, an incredible prayer warrior, really, with God. Yeah, I think as you and I were talking about this ahead of time, he even said that his time with Burns was, was almost like seminary. Yeah, it, it, it's so, more, so much more valuable than seminary, being with this godly man, seeing God at work through him, and, and learning so much together, encouraging each other, praying with each other. Uh, you know, great lessons for today. Yeah, it's uh, as Taylor and Burns are working, uh, Ta Taylor is uh, famously quoted as saying, let us in everything not sinful become like the Chinese that by all means we may save some. And they sought so desperately to win people to faith in Christ. Uh, in 1865, Taylor went back home to England on furlough, some medical issues that he personally was facing. Um, and there he started the work to found the China Inland Mission, uh, this amazing evangelical um, uh, missions organization that for quite some time continues to be the dominant presence within uh, the, the, the work within China. As he's uh, doing this, he's uh, in England, he's, he's finding out more and more about uh, faith missions and the work of George Mueller uh, inspires him. He gets to know um, 
some of the way that this idea of supporting your your work and your mission work by faith. Um, this is a different way than relying on a denomination to support you. Why would people be so attracted to this faith missions thing? Well, if you remember, this is only, you know, a half century and, and on from the original foreign missions with William Carey. And, and you know, Carey himself is, is called the father of modern missions, partly because the idea is that you support yourself on the mission field. You do what you can believe in that God has sent you there. And so with the faith missions idea that Taylor has, if you believe that God has called you, then you will pray and God will support you doing what he's called you to do so that you're dependent on him rather than on an agency that sent you and them supporting as if it's all kind of sewn up. But it's much more calls for you stepping out in faith and, and living in faith, believing that God will uh, provide exactly what he's called you to do there. And at some future episode, we'll have to talk about Mueller because I, I think this amazing story <laughs> relating to his understanding of faith missions blows my mind every time I read them. Um, but while Taylor is is kind of learning these things and, and changing his methodology, he's meeting and, and becomes good friends with Charles Spurgeon, uh, with the Irish philanthropist uh, Thomas John Bernardo, mm -hmm. and uh, drawing from this, this well not only of financial resources, but of spiritual resources that encourage him uh, overall. Yeah, and how important is that, that you have behind you um, people who are praying constantly and consistently for you in such horrifically difficult circumstances right. as pioneer missions in China. And, and any success, any blessing that you see is dependent that you have this prayer support behind you. Absolutely. Well, Taylor ends up uh, spending the rest of his life moving back and forth between China and England, pressing forward the cause of the gospel. He makes the trek 11 mm. times. And again, just averaging out that five-month period, yeah. 11 times. So five years almost at sea. <laughs> at sea. You can only imagine uh, you know, how many sailors may have come to Christ in the right. midst of that as well. Yes. Um, despite riots, the death of his first wife, the Boxer Rebellion, Taylor continued to empower mission work to reach people for Christ. He died during his 11th trip uh, in the country that he loved so much. So let's turn our attention, though, to the other event uh, that we talked about at the first of the podcast, to uh, the, this passion of Perpetua and Felicitas. In the year 203, on March 7, a group of young believers went to their deaths as martyrs for the cause of Christ. The account of the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas has long held special interest for Christians as an encouragement of taking your faith seriously. Our guest this week is Rex Butler of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Butler is a professor of church history and patristics and is also the John T. Westbrook Chair of Church History and the author of the book entitled The New Prophecy and New Visions, Evidence of Montanism in the Passion of Perpetua and Felicitas. Rex, I'm so glad that uh, you're joining us today. Thank you, John Mark, and greetings to you from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. 
So Rex, you and I have gotten a chance to uh, have fun actually a lot in North Africa, as well as do some studying in uh, the the basically the area of North African Christianity. Tell me what attracted you to studying the early church and to North African Christianity in particular. Okay. Well, my interest in the early church developed out of my philosophy of church history in general, in that I see church history as a tapestry, and every member of the church from the very beginning until now has been contributing uh, and weaving threads uh, into that tapestry so that all of church history is a series of cause and effect. Everything that has happened has caused uh, another um, uh, person, event, uh, movement, and then in turn that has uh, developed into um, more uh, events in church history so that today we are connected with those who have gone before us in the church and nothing uh, demonstrates that more than a study of the early church so that we can see how we've been impacted by the early church fathers and the early church mothers, uh, those who were persecuted, those who uh, defended our faith in the midst of persecution, those who defended our faith uh, from attacks from heresies, uh, the development of theology in the councils and so forth. So mm-hmm. I like to uh, to study it and to teach it in a way so that so that uh, so that my students and the church today can see how we are connected to those who have gone before us. I love that picture of a tapestry, and uh, it's just even you know you look at a a, a fantastic tapestry. Uh, that's done maybe in an art museum or something, and you see this overwhelming beauty when you see the big picture and you stand back and look at it. So you can look at the details of the the individual pieces, but it's that big picture that uh, really reflects something grand. And you know, as we intersect uh, ourselves, as we ourselves are are contributing to that broader sp- uh, picture, we're actually demonstrating the the glory of Christ and uh, and and who God is. I love. That as a picture. Now you have uh, written quite a bit and engaged with this narrative of the acts of Perpetua and Felicitas. Many of our listeners may not have um, any familiarity with this uh, story, with this account. Can you help our listeners by kind of overviewing the story of Perpetua and why this uh, this account, this acts account? Uh, was so important for so many. Oh, yes. Uh, Thank you for giving me that that opportunity. The the passion of Perpetua and Felicitas is a treasure for the church. Uh, We, uh, of course, you understand that uh, the word passion uh, means suffering. And uh, so we're talking about the suffering of Perpetua and Felicitas to uh, courageous women of the early church, but also they had uh, four uh, male companions that uh, suffered with them. Uh, it's interesting that the document was named after the two women in the group. Uh, right. And I I must say that Augustine found that uh, uh, puzzling, but <laughs> he 
and he um, used a pun to uh, to figure out why, because the the women's names together mean perpetual felicity, mm. okay, or uh, uh, unending happiness, and he felt like their names represented uh, the uh, the character of the 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 martyrs. But nonetheless, uh, the the document comes to us with from three authors that were involved. Perpetua herself was a young noblewoman, uh, literate and a literary, uh, mm-hmm. which was uh, unusual for that time for anyone, much less a woman. But she was. Uh, fluent in both uh, Latin and Greek, and uh, she had access to paper and pen, and she recorded for us her experiences, uh, both before uh, her imprisonment, during her imprisonment. Um, She records some fantastic visions that are uh, incredible to read. Uh, She describes her conflict with her father, who begged her to renounce her faith in Christ, uh, but she refused. She was steadfast. She was a young mother uh, with a nursing uh, uh, infant son, and so she described that relationship. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and her diary is embedded in the Passion, and this is the earliest existing writing that we have uh, from a Christian woman. Yes, so uh, what a delight it is to read uh, from her own pen what it was like to be uh, a woman in uh, in the early church and especially to be a martyr. So we're grateful for this diary from Perpetua. Now, uh, her teacher, Saturus, was also in prison, and he had a, a beatific vision, a vision of heaven uh, similar to John's vision of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, and he uh, wrote this down. And so these two writings from uh, from the, the prisoners were passed off to someone. We do not know uh, to whom. I would assume someone that they knew in their congregation or right. maybe even in their conventicle, their small group. Uh, but this person uh, gave an introduction uh you know, uh, transcribed their their personal writings, but then was an eyewitness to their uh, fight with the beasts in the arena and saw their deaths and then uh, wrote all of that down with a benediction, uh, a, a eulogy for uh, these martyrs. So uh, this is not a long uh, a writing and it's uh, easily accessible uh, on the internet or in other writings. And so I just encourage uh, anyone to read The Passion of Perpetua and Felicitas. You will be blessed. Yeah, it's, uh, I have my students in my master's level church history classes read this uh, as one of the primary sources that they engage. Yes. And some of the things that really stand out <clears throat> to them is the appeal of the father to Perpetua mm. and the pressure he's putting on her to. Uh, renounce Christ and uh, the the claims that he's making, and you the students will often re- recall it for them that it's just palpable as they're reading this that there's this is a real mm-hmm. pull, and you can feel it in the in the text that that this is uh, something where she is really having to stand firm for her faith. Um, may I tell you a story? Absolutely. Uh, 
re related to uh, the, the father and the daughter. Uh, he comes to her and uh, is begging her to renounce Christ so that she may live. Uh, he, uh, he, he, he places a guilt on her related to her infant son. But uh, as, as he's appealing to her, uh, Perpetua uh, points to this vase that is, uh, is there at hand. And she says, Father, do you see this vase? Yes. Can it be called by any other name than what it is? No. In the same way, I can be called by no other name than what I am. I am a Christian. And so she identifies herself as a Christian. And as you look through other um, uh, martyr tales, you see that that uh, over and over again, those who are on trial for their faith in Christ, uh, they simply put forward their confession of faith. I am a Christian. That, now, in this so particular powerful. story, she uh, she 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 reports that that uh, uh, her father uh, left defeated. And he gave up his diabolical arguments, diabolical meaning of the devil. And so she kind of casts her father in a devilish role as if he is standing in for Satan, trying to tempt her right. away from her, her confession of faith. It's, it's so amazing to see that pressure, even from a family member, uh, for her to, to give up her faith. But even more so, the whole arena scene uh, given by the compiler of this um, uh, of this narrative is just unbelievably uh, powerful. The whole uh, image of the beasts attacking, of the crowd cheering, um, especially that cheer of well washed as the martyr's mm -hmm. blood uh, saturates even the crowd. Uh, talk a little bit about that and, and what's happening there. Okay. I'll talk to you about uh, uh, Saturus uh, at the end of the of the narrative. Uh, Saturus uh, has uh, has had a vision that he would die by one bite of the leopard. Okay, it uh, it. He admits that he's afraid of a bear, and so he's praying that uh, he would not die in that way. And in fact, uh, they unleash a bear, uh, but uh, the bear does won't have anything to do with Saturus. Uh, another time, they uh, they unleash a wild boar upon Saturus, but actually the boar uh, attacks the handler. And uh, uh, wounds the the Roman soldier to the point that the soldier dies, and uh, and Satris is spared. And so Satris is reserved for uh, the leopard, who uh, with it, it says just with one bite of uh, of his of his fangs, uh, he uh, plunges his his teeth into Satris's shoulder, and the blood spurts everywhere. It evidently is so. Uh, profuse, uh, perhaps in some way it, it even pours, flings itself on the on the the, the spectators, 
And so they're crying, well washed, well washed. And uh, uh, this is the, the greeting that uh, men would, would give to each other as they entered in the, the Roman baths, the public baths, well washed. And so this is a very perverse way for them to cheer and to chant and to jeer about, uh, about this, uh, this bloody scene. Mm-hmm. But the narrator says, yes, Satris is well washed. He's washed in his blood as if it were a second baptism, the baptism of blood. Right. So this is an, a, an, a, an amazing visual of how Christians perceive their deaths. Uh, because for them, uh, martyrdom was, uh, was, uh, was like a second baptism. It was like a another expression of their union with Christ. Christ suffered and died, and they are united with him in his suffering and death. And for them, this was this was an honor. Perhaps the highest honor that they could have would be to be counted worthy of persecution and martyrdom. Now, in your book, you talked uh, a lot about connecting the way that this narrative is told to a, a movement that was prevalent in North Africa uh, during this time period called Montanism. What is Montanism, and how does this narrative connect to that movement? Okay. Montanism is uh is a name given by uh the enemies of this uh, of this movement uh and and they name it after the founder montanus uh and he functioned uh in in the mid second century around one fifty six to one seventy so on and so forth um and Montanus had two uh, women who assisted him. They were Priscilla and uh, Maximilla. And these three taught that God showed his blessing when he gave the, the, the spirit in such a way that they, uh, that they prophesied, they spoke in tongues. It was a very spirit-based movement. It was a movement that encouraged the participation of of any uh, charismatic uh, person, including women. They were um, they were very rigorous in their fasting, and they had high expectations of Jesus' soon return. Now, they called themselves uh, the New Prophecy or the New Prophets. And so that was that was how they referred to their movement um, based on the, what they considered to be their activity, their their new prophecy. And one of the side effects of this spirit based movement was that they felt like their uh, prophetic utterances had authority uh, mm-hmm. the same as uh, those uh, sacred writings that had had come to them from. Uh, from the gospel writers and 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 the the letter writers like Paul and James and Peter, so they did give uh, high 
uh, authority, high regard to their prophetic pronouncements. All right, so uh, this was this was highly criticized in the East, in Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey, is where it originated, and the churches there, the bishops, very critical. Um, they actually, you know, excommunicated Montanus and the right. followers. Um, but in North Africa, this movement found a home because the North African church was very rigorous in their pursuit of Christianity. And they were, um, uh, they were very zealous in their pursuit of, uh, of, of the Christian life in such a way that, uh, they, um, uh, they're even thought to have courted persecution and martyrdom. So, uh, the North African church, uh, some historians call it the, the church of the martyrs because we, mm-hmm. we have so many stories like the, uh, uh, the acts of the skeleton uh, martyrs, uh, as well as uh, Perpetuan Felicitas and uh, Cyprian later on, um, and, and, and so on. So, uh, in, in North Africa, the Montanists actually, or the new prophets, uh, let me say, they they were not uh, separate from the Catholic or the established church. They would worship with the uh, with the broader church, but then they often um, met separately in what I call conventicles. We might call them cell groups or small groups, and they right. would, uh, after worship, they would gather and talk about their visions and their prophecies. And um, and the leader, uh, or at least a leader, was Tertullian. We haven't mentioned him uh, right. yet, but Tertullian is one of the great church fathers. Uh, we uh, we credit him with developing uh, formulas for the Trinity and for Christology, and uh, was a great teacher in Carthage. And he was he was a follower of uh, the New Prophecy, and uh, and, and so uh, he talks about uh, the uh, this movement in North Africa, his participation in it. He talks about. Uh, meeting with uh, different prophetesses and hearing their oracles and so on and so forth. So uh, the Montanism was very strong in North Africa. It was strong in Carthage at this time. And so, yes, you're right. I look at the passion of Perpetua. I look at Perpetua's diary. I look at Satris's uh, vision, and I look at the editor's framework, and and I compare uh those documents with the tenets of Montanism and see if there's evidence that um, that those who participated in the the production of the the Passion were they Montanists and you know I come to the conclusion uh, yes they were. But it was that from your perspective it was that North African Montanism that has a little bit of a uh, we might say a little bit of a different flavor than what was originally found in the East. Yes, a slightly different flavor, and especially a uh, uh, a greater acceptance and uh, participation in North African Christianity. But perhaps Tertullian, because of his very uh, strong character and influence, he might have shaped um, 
the new prophecy in certain ways that made it more acceptable or um, you know made it more prevalent there in his context that that is um so so powerful to think about how the leadership uh from someone like Tertullian could allow this to be shaped and um used in a way as an encouragement to a church under duress under um difficult days so at Midwestern we're always talking about things being for the church and our mission and purpose here at Midwestern is uh to live that out what could a pastor or a church leader take away from the story of Perpetua and Felicitas and the things that we've been talking about that would apply to their church? Mm, thank you for asking that, because one of my goals as a church history teacher is to help my students. And uh, when I go to the church and, and, and speak there, I want my listeners to make application of church history to where they live and how they serve Christ. And here is, I think, one of the great lessons that we can take from uh, the persecution of the early church is that in in those days, uh, yes, they suffered, yes, they were persecuted, but they not only survived, but they thrived. And one of the lessons that we learn uh, from Tertullian himself is that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He says to the Romans, the more we are mown down by you, the more we grow. And so this principle is that, uh, is that the suffering doesn't suppress the church. No, instead it causes it to grow. Because for one thing, it it revitalizes the church. It it no one is going to remain in the church uh, if if they're going to be you know persecuted and suffer unless they have truly uh, united with Christ. Okay, and so uh, the the church often uh, is weakened by nominal. Uh, Christians, but uh, boy, under persecution, if you're in the church, you you're there because you believe in Jesus and you want to live your life for Him. So, in that sense, persecution strengthens the church. Uh, in another sense, it uh, it it spawns growth because it attracts attention. Uh, Tertullian himself may have become a Christian because he watched some Christian martyrs die in public, and he said, "I want to find out." What is it about these Christians? What is it about their about Jesus uh, that they're willing to die for him? Okay, wow. so uh, when Christians suffer, those who are spectators say, man, I want to find out more about Christianity. And so that's one thing that we can learn, that, uh, that suffering uh, brings about a vitality in the church. So in our contemporary setting, you know, we're in America. We typically live a pretty soft life, and uh, and yet we're uh, we're now engaging a culture that is more hostile, is more pluralistic, uh, and uh, and more critical of Christianity. They're more they're they're becoming more and more different from uh, from from Christianity, and so 
we need to embrace those differences. And as uh, as we face criticism, you know, typically uh, I whine and complain, <laughs> but you know, I don't find that to be very effective. Mm. Uh, but if we bear up and persevere and and hold to our faith in Christ and do it winsomely, I think we're going to uh, win people to Christ, and uh, people are going to uh, going to respond favorably to our witness to Jesus. Mm. May I please give an example from the Passion of Perpetua? Oh, please. Uh, Pudence was the jailer that was uh, in charge of Perpetua and Felicitas and her companions. And it says that he uh, was amazed by not only their character, but also by the care given to them by their, um, their church. And so Pudence was one to faith in Christ uh, because of the witness of those who were in his jail. And at the very end of the story, when Saturus uh, is, uh, is, is bleeding from uh, this, this mortal wound, uh, this mortal bite from the leopard, he calls Pudence to his side and he says, see, Pudence, this is happening just as I said it would. Uh, he said he asked for Pudence's ring and he dipped the ring in his blood and then gave it back to him as a memorial. And he said, remember me, remember my suffering and, mm. uh, and stand strong in your faith. So all of this to say that, uh, that that's one lesson we can learn is that uh, suffering and persecution uh, can be can spawn the growth of the church. Wow, Dr. Butler, thank you so much for just a, a clear connection uh, on that point. For our listeners, uh, if you are interested in more about this uh, account, The Passion of Perpetua and Felicitas, as Dr. Butler has already indicated, you can find that pretty much anywhere uh, online. You can Google and search and find that. Dr. Butler's book itself um, called The New Prophecy and New Visions, Evidence of Montanism in the Passion of Perpetua and Felicitas uh, can be found at bookstores. You can even go to The Sword and Trowel, our bookstore here on the campus of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and we can help you order that if that is something that you would be interested in reading for yourself. Thanks again, Dr. Butler, for joining us today, and thank you, listener, for joining us this week in church history.